Hello friends, welcome to Camp Kaiju, where we break down a different monster movie each episode. We're talking the good, the bad, and the downright campy. Kaiju are fun, and all strange beasts are welcome here. We're your hosts, Vincent Hannum and Matt Lespleen Levine. Camp Kaiju is brought to you by BanditsEmporium.com, your favorite shop for unique t-shirt merchandise and the official t-shirt partner of Camp Kaiju. Long sleeves, short sleeves, red shirts, blue shirts, soft shirts. Oh, you know you love their shirts. Well, now you can use promo code CAMPKAIJU at checkout for a 10% discount. Go to BanditsEmporium.com or hit the link in our bio. Hey, whatever your style, BanditsEmporium.com has you covered. As they say, we sell shirts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Camp Kaiju. I'm your host, Vincent. My co-host, Matt Lespleen, will be joining us here any second. We're going to talk about Peter Jackson's 2005 King Kong, the eighth wonder of the world. So we're very excited to break that down for you. The good, the bad, and the downright campy. Hey, buddy. Hey, Vince. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Excellent. Okay. So now that you're in... Uh, how about how about that Kong? Man, I hadn't seen this since it first came out. So 17 years, something like that. Um, you know, I had some vague memories of what I liked and mostly what I didn't like about it. But um, but this time around, I really enjoyed it. I still have some quibbles, but it's a fun movie. I'm excited to talk about it. I feel the exact same way. Um, the only time I had seen it was in the theater back in 05. Um, and... So since then, like I've fallen in love with, even more in love with the 33 Kong, uh, that, the sequel to that one, Son of Kong, Kong Skull Island. But I was a little hesitant about Peter Jackson's Kong because I don't know, in my mind, it, it didn't stand the test of time. I was just like, great, another, another remake. And we're so saturated with remakes these days. I wasn't really interested. But then I started Camp Kaiju, and I was like, I got to watch this movie now. Mm. Yeah, totally. I, I felt the same. I, you know, the Lord of the Rings movies I, I like, they're extremely well made, of course, but I'm not like a huge Tolkien fan. I, uh, so, you know, like the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings movies, I was like, they're good. I'm not like dying to see what he does next or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. So then when this came out, I sort of like you said, I thought it was going to be kind of a cash grab, even though it's a movie that he had wanted to make for a long time. Mm-hmm. And you know, wanted to in the 90s and then didn't really get a chance to until 2005. And, you know, it, it has a lot of personality. Like, I think he uh, he does a lot with the story. He um, he makes the most of it, makes some really fascinating updates to the original version. So, um, yeah, we'll get into all of that. But but I, I enjoyed it a lot more this time than I thought I was going to. Yeah, right on, dude. Okay, so um, before we get into the production history... Uh, we will just give a brief synopsis of the movie, if anyone out there doesn't know the King Kong story. And then we'll just cover cast and crew. And then we will talk about some cool t-shirts. And then we'll get into the good, the bad, and the downright campy, as we saw it with this motion picture. <laughs> Can't wait. Okay, here we go. Here's the synopsis for Peter Jackson's King Kong. Uh, So the film opens in 1933, New York City. It is the height of the Great Depression. Jackson does a really great job of painting the the little details of the real world at the time. You have bread lines, homeless people. 
and uh, the vaudeville circuit, the stage, the theatrical life of that era. And it's in this world where we meet Anne Darrow, and she is pretty much our protagonist, our human protagonist. Uh, she's a vaudeville actress. She sings, she dances, she clowns around, which is a lot of fun. You really get to already like her and be on her side. But then what happens is she uh, is unemployed. Her show is shut down. She finds herself on the street. She finds herself desperate enough to try to steal an apple from a street vendor. She gets caught, but is saved fortuitously by Carl Denham, who is a movie producer and someone who has found himself on some hard times because he is, he's like a really big grandiose character who makes movies that match his personality. So he's running up the budget on some epic movie and the studio says, Carl, we can't give you any more money about for this, we're shutting it down. And Carl doesn't take no for an answer. So behind the movie studio's back, he decides he's still gonna make his epic jungle picture. So that's where kind of the, the events are set in motion. He find, he just, he discovers Ann Darrow, says you would be great in my movie. Of course she needs the money. She says yes. She also says yes because the screenwriter of the movie is acclaimed playwright Jack Driscoll and she wants to meet him. So now we have Carl Denham, Ann Darrow, and Jack Driscoll. They get on board this ship to go to some far off exotic island. Carl's the only one who knows where they're going. They're going to the mysterious Skull Island, which is just this like uh, land that time forgot, full of dark mysteries. Even Carl doesn't even know what he's gonna find there. <laughs> but when they get to the island, the three of them, they go ashore with uh, some of the production crew and some of the ship crew as well. So you got this big gang of people. They've got Tommy guns. They've got uh, movie cameras. They're, they're in for it. They come across a village seemingly abandoned. Well, it's not. It's full of native people who attack them, ambush them, kill a bunch of the, the white people, and basically all hell breaks loose. Um, Driscoll, Darrow, and Denham get back to the ship. Things calm down, but that night, the natives steal aboard the ship, abduct Anne, and take her back to the island. Because what they're going to do is they're going to sacrifice her to their god, who in this case is a 25-foot-tall gorilla named Kong, who lives beyond the village walls deep in the jungle. So it's during the middle of the sacrificial ritual that Driscoll... This time, Jack Driscoll, he rallies the crew to go save Anne because now they've developed a romantic relationship. So then what happens is a classic adventure tale of damsel in distress. The crew, they go into the jungle. They encounter dinosaurs. They encounter giant bugs. Anything and everything is trying to kill them. Driscoll finds Anne with Kong atop a mountain. And now... and and. And while Anne is being searched for, she and Kong have developed a relationship themselves, um, which is a really interesting relationship. And with that said, though, Anne, of course, goes with Jack. Then it's like a chase through the jungle. Kong is chasing them back to the beach. They get to the beach where Kong is trapped by Carl Denham, who recognizes that Kong, not this movie he's making, is his ticket to fame. 
So they capture Kong, they whisk Kong back to New York City, where he, where, where Kong is put into chains on a Broadway show. And people come to see the giant ape, which of course breaks loose, and Kong wreaks havoc in New York City, finds Anne, whom he legitimately cares for these days, um, and takes her to the top of the Empire State Building, where he is then, where Kong is then attacked by military aircraft, who just pump him full of lead, and then he falls to his death. And it's a really tragic ending to King Kong. There you go, King Kong. Uh, spoilers abound. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a well-known story that hopefully they're not really spoilers, you know, but um, but one of the things I think is so fascinating about this remake is that its story in the broad terms is, is very similar to the original story. Um, it, you know, in like the broad outline, they go to Skull Island, they, there are adventures, there are dinosaur fights, um, the natives abduct Anne, uh, all those things happen in the original as well. Um, but, you know, the original is an hour and 40 minutes. This version from 2005 is three hours, 10 minutes. Um, Peter Jackson really is able to indulge a lot of the characters and relationships more than the original uh, even tries to do or has time to do. Um, I, I think like the Anne Darrow character is a perfect example of that. You know, in the original, we don't really know anything about her. She is she's had some bit parts. She was an extra in a couple things. Uh, but aside from that, like within a couple minutes of meeting the Carl Denham character, the Faye Ray character in the original is like, yeah, sure, I'll join you. Why not? Mm -hmm. So it, it's just, um, you know, like the, the ability to sort of get a lot more into the characters in this remake and, and some of the other changes, like the fact that Jack Driscoll, like you said, Vincent, is a playwright, whereas in the original, he's kind of this um, bland, very sexist, like, uh, um, you know, ship hand, sailor, um, yeah. who for some reason the Fey Ray character falls in love with, even though he's a complete asshole. Um, he's he's and, he yeah he's the he's the stereotypical strong jawed macho man. Yeah, which is sort of Peter Jackson. You know, he kind of makes pokes fun at through the Kyle Chandler character in the remake. Kyle Chandler is sort of this matinee star um, who you know is very handsome but extremely vain and mm -hmm. has his moments of heroism, but revealed to be like not so bright most of the time. Mm -hmm. um, so that's just a long way of saying that I think it's fascinating how similar the broad plot outlines are to these movies, um, but just how much Peter Jackson does with it. He makes it a totally different film. Right, which is why I thought I should indulge, just like Peter Jackson, I should indulge in the synopsis a little bit because it is the same, but there are some key differences in the characterizations. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so as those characters, you mentioned Kyle Chandler, who plays a role. Uh, Naomi, 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 Naomi Watts yeah. plays Ann Darrow. Uh, Jack Black plays Carl Denham. You have Adrian Brody as Jack Driscoll. And you have Andy Serkis playing King Kong through stop, cat motion. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, obviously directed by Peter Jackson following Return of the King. Uh, you mentioned some of the production history that this of this movie going back to even the 1990s, which I was surprised about. I didn't realize, because, you know, a lot of times movies, they're rumored to be in development. But what makes this one unique, I think, is that Jackson himself had been attached to it for that long. as just like a pet project. 
Right, and I, as far as I know, he uh, he wanted to make it after The Frighteners, and <laughs> The Frighteners is a conversation for another time. That movie yeah. does not date very well, but <laughs> but it it did well when it first came out, and he you know sort of had the chance to do King Kong, and then there were several ape movies coming out around the same time. Mighty Joe Young was one of them. I think there was another, but I can't remember which one it was now. Yeah, um, I, uh, Planet of the Apes, I think. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, then he did Lord of the Rings instead and finally got his chance to make his, his, uh, you know, beloved pet project King Kong remake after the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was a long time coming. Yeah. And I read that, um, Universal Studios was impressed with his work on the Frighteners, but also knew how much of, uh, like a number one fan he was of King Kong. They knew that he would bring his heart and soul to it. Uh, and and 10 years later, he, he absolutely did, I think. I think that's where, yeah, so he, he, was, he was given uh, complete creative freedom to do whatever he wanted, which he, he earned through the Lord of the Rings trilogy. But that's always so interesting because, like, like having unlimited power is wonderful in theory, but <laughs> you, you need someone to keep you in check a little bit. Yeah, I think, you know, if you don't have all the money in the world and you have producers kind of breathing down your neck, you know, we sort of talked about this with Mimic a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, sometimes those constraints can lead to creative solutions and can be more interesting than just like all the resources and all the freedom in the world. Yes. Um, yeah. 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 And I think that that is where his King Kong, maybe it's where it's Achilles heel falls. Just the... It's like, yeah, come on. You could have been a little bit more creative than just throwing money at all the CGI. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, if you had like a running time cap of like two hours, 40 minutes, that might have mm. not been the worst thing in the world with this movie. But at, at the same time, and I'm, you know, like I love and I hate the fact that this is more than three hours long. Mm -hmm. It's what makes it distinct, but also makes it kind of a slog at times. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I do uh, also. Oh, sorry. No, I was just gonna say, um, there are specific scenes that address what you're saying that uh, I, I want to bring up later in the show. That sounds great. Uh, yeah, the, 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 the criticisms were overwhelmingly positive, especially on the technical side. Um, the special effects, the score, the sound design all got, um, all, all received Academy Award nominations. Um, correct me if I'm wrong on that, but I think so. Uh, there were some crit um, critiques levied at that indulgence that we talked about of the spectacle. Uh, but also that even in 2005, there was some commentary on the, let's say, questionable racial um, characters presented in the film. Um, so I present all that now as just a foreshadowing to what we will talk about when we get to our, our, our personal breakdowns. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, you know, the the question about the the racial depictions in the film, you know, to tackle that right away, it's uh, like you you sense that Peter Jackson's remake is aware of how questionable the depiction is, because of course in the original King Kong, these this white crew, these white filmmakers and the white uh, ship crew come to this remote exotic island, which has all these natives who are seen, you know, in a very stereotypical sort of tribal dance. Um, they're they have no personality, no names, like they're kind of later in, in the original King Kong, they're sort of just like, you know, uh, victims for King Kong, basically. That's like their main role in the movie. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, like it is 1933 and there are just unfortunately like countless examples of casual racism in Hollywood movies from that time. Um, but it, of course it's hard to watch. So with Peter Jackson's remake, that is retained to a large extent. Like we still have these depictions of the white filmmakers and the white ship crew coming to this island. We have, um, you know, these, these characters of color who sort of seem like the orcs in the Lord of the Rings movies, which is like very uncomfortable to watch. Like the Lord of the Rings movies are fantasy. It's, it, you know, maybe you could still criticize them for having these dark colored, like monstrous characters. That certainly is a valid criticism. Um, so like it's, but it is different in Lord of the Rings, right? Like it's sort of a fantasy world. And then in King Kong, it's supposed to be the real world. And it's such an uncomfortable depiction. It's uh, like they are seen as savages, very primitive. They don't seem to have any civilization at all on this island. Um, and I just think it's interesting because Peter Jackson and the filmmakers seem aware of this. They actually sort of uh, bring up Heart of Darkness, the Joseph Conrad novel, which mm -hmm. is well known for being a critique of European colonialism, mm -hmm. but has also been accused of uh, you know, racist stereotypes of the African characters in that novel, right. especially by Chinua Achebe, the Nigerian author. So. Mm -hmm. I feel like the King Kong remake is, you know, there's a character reading Heart of Darkness, and I feel like that's setting, up, setting us up to think about how is this movie's depiction of Native characters part of a larger, like, very vile and very nefarious tradition of depicting Black characters in this way, characters mm -hmm. of color in this way. Mm -hmm. So it's self-aware, but that doesn't let the movie off the hook. Like, it is, I feel like if you're depicting characters like that in 2005, you need to reconsider it. You need to sort of make it clear that, you know, there, these are characters, these are flesh and blood human beings. There is a civilization there. Um, you know, you sort of just can't do the same old thing and expect to get away with it, even if you're more self-reflexive about it, you know? Um, it's a, it, yeah, it's an issue that the movie is never really able to resolve, I don't think, or, or feels comfortable with, you know? Yes, uh, yes, yeah, yeah, I do. And thank you for, for that insight. Um, I've read Heart of Darkness. I, I I I didn't catch the 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 meaning of that in this movie. Um, thank you for enlightening me there. And and to your point, um, comparing the depiction of the natives in King Kong 2005 versus the natives in Skull Island from 2017, it's night and day. Mm -hmm. The natives in in Kong Skull Island, they are depicted like real human beings. They're a peaceful, loving tribe who just try to live in harmony with the natural world. Um, which, I mean, it's just like, oh, you, you, there is a way to depict the natives as normal people. Uh, right. Yeah. A rich culture and rich, rich civilization. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's another moment in, in the King Kong remake towards the end when Carl Denham is putting on his Broadway show and, you know, the ape is in chains and... Uh, and we see, um, you know, all these black extras in this Broadway show who are like kind of repeating this questionable depiction from earlier in the film. But this time it's like within Carl Denham's own like show within the show, you know. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that almost, again, is very self-aware and self-reflexive, like comparing Carl Denham doing that to Peter Jackson himself doing that, mm -hmm. which is like interesting. But it's like, OK, if you're aware of it, then what is the point of doing that? Like, I don't know there seems like there should be more interesting and more humane ways to avoid like falling into that trap, which has been, um, you know, with so many white directors I've committed since like the dawn of Hollywood film, basically. And, you know, I'm not making excuses or anything, um, certainly not for the older 
movies. But I think it's, I think in a way, Jackson and all of us, you know, you say white directors and artists, we're influenced just subconsciously because that's the culture in which we live. Like I write just myself as a, as a playwright. I love writing adventure fantasy films and I'll be writing, I'll be writing, I'll be writing. And then I'll, I'll read and I'll be like, Oh my God, I, I fell into the trap. I fell into the, the white savior trap. I fell into the um, magical Negro trap. And like, these are harmful stereotypes that are so deeply ingrained in our pop culture. You'll, you'll just find yourself writing those and, and you don't even realize it. Yeah, I, you're right that it's so deeply ingrained and those are the stories that we know so well. Um, and you know, I, I think it's the responsibility of the artists when they realize that to say, I can't, you know, I can't just repeat these stereotypes. I have to do something different with it. So I wish, you know, I wish Peter Jackson and the, film, the makers of the King Kong remake had been a little more aware of that and done something a little bit more revisionist, something a little more subversive. Because um, they're certainly aware of how, like, questionable the depiction is, but then just kind of do it anyway. So, right. Yeah. And then to that point, even artistically, it might have been a more interesting choice to turn the, to subvert the stereotypes that we expect to see. Yeah. And, you know, like certainly one of the larger themes of the movie is that there's not that much of a difference between like the, you know, quote unquote, civilized American, like New York world that, mm -hmm. is, that we see in the beginning and the end and the, you know, seemingly primitive, primitive uh, savage world on the island. Certainly one of the themes of the movie is that both of them are equally barbaric and violent. Yeah. Um, so that that theme is fully felt, but I but uh, it seems a little bit almost hypocritical at times because at the same time you're depicting these native characters in such a yeah violent barbaric way, way more than you do the white characters. Yeah, it, yeah, we could go on and on about this because uh, it w I was almost turned off during those the the tribal moments. Yeah, I don't I don't need to see orcs in a King Kong movie when they're not supposed to be orcs; they're supposed to be human beings. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a big issue for the remake, for sure. Yeah. Um, well, uh, okay, so that's what we didn't like about the movie. Before we get into uh, the good and the campy, I do want to pause and give a shout out to our sponsor, our t-shirt partner, BanditsEmporium.com. They are great. They provide us with cool swag. I'm rocking a Frankenstein t-shirt right now. Uh, hey, he's just misunderstood people. Uh, he wants love for Valentine's Day like everybody else. You can get this shirt and others for uh, 10. Yeah, there you go, Matt. Like this classic. The OG logo right there. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, uh, both of these shirts and others are available at banditsemporium.com. You can get 10% off by using the promo code Camp Kaiju. And you can check out their link in our bio. Or again, visit banditsemporium.com. As they say, we sell shirts. All right, thanks everybody for uh, for hanging out with us. We are, we are enjoying this conversation and we really want to dig into what we've liked about this movie because there's a lot. But Matt, I want to I hear more about you or more from you. Yeah, what, what I like, I think my favorite thing about this movie is the relationship between Anne and Kong, which is like surprisingly extremely moving. It's very, very effective. 
And that's largely due to Naomi Watts and Andy Serkis, who does, you know, as he did in the Lord of the Rings movies, just like amazing acting, like with the motion capture technology. Um, the soulfulness that we see in Kong's eyes is really, really effective. And the relationship, you alluded to this before, Vincent, but the relationship between them, it's not exactly a romantic relationship because, you know, obviously that would not work and seems aware of that. Like, there's a moment when she's about <laughs> to be rescued by Jack and she seems sad that she's going to be rescued because she's mm -hmm. going to be taken away from Kong. But then, you know, like, uh, Naomi Watts does such a great job in this scene because she must be thinking... I can't stay here. Like, there's no way this would work out for me. This can't be my life, even if it seems like she kind of wants to, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so then there's the tragic ending, which, uh, you know, of course, on the Empire State Building, Kong is shot down and, and plummets to his death. And I was tearing up. It's really, really effective. And um, yeah, it, whether it's a romantic relationship or just like a really sincere friendship between two people who are, you know, two animals, not yeah. people, who... Yeah. Um, living beings yeah have this unspoken connection it's uh you know and again like the the original doesn't really have the time or the inclination to do that like you know it is sad when kong is killed in the original but certainly there's not like a a bond between kong and Anne in that movie i don't think not to the same extent so yeah. it's done so well and it's uh it's really touching it's uh yeah um so that's probably my favorite thing about the movie. I think, you know, like the monster fights are, are so fun. Like they're really well done, especially the one where Kong is fighting three dinosaurs at the same time. It's yeah. just, you know, it, it is a very long scene, but I'm okay with that, <laughs> like going on for so long. Uh, yeah, so this, that stuff is all fun to watch. The the giant bug part is legitimately scary and really oh. disgusting. Yeah. Um, and then I have one more thing that I really liked about the movie, but it's also in my campy category. So maybe I'll save that to the yeah. end. Yeah, yeah, save it, save it. Um, I'm right with, there with you. I think um, uh, I think it's only natural to compare this movie to the original. Um, the original, I think, holds up as um, a classic film in different ways. But, but I think what makes King Kong 05 so rewatchable is that it expands and deepens those relationships. Uh, it, it deepens that relationship between Anne and Kong. And like you, I was crying. I, I think I was, a, I was home alone watching this movie and I was just a mess on the couch. Um, and that is a testament to uh, Jackson's devotion to building this relationship. In addition to Circus's and Naomi Watts's uh, portrayals of the characters. And they get along so well. Kong is so personable and funny. He like plays jokes on Anne, but then like he he has feelings that get hurt. And he's just a fully fleshed character. And it's I mean, in that regard, it is worlds better than the nineteen thirty-three version. Um the the dinosaurs on, on Skull Island, I love seeing them. The, the Brontosaurus, the Velociraptors. It's like, sure, we got, we got shades of Jurassic Park, but, but whatever, that's what we want. We're right here to see it. And Kong came first, so, you know, he could do that. <laughs> um, and the bug scene. Yeah, man, that is truly one of the most horrific things I've ever seen in a movie. 
Yeah. I, uh, you know, I have a phobia of spiders and bugs to begin with. That's like my, um, uh, what's the word, senseless fear. That's my phobia. Yeah. So yeah, that scene really got to me. And I feel like something that Peter Jackson does really well, also in the Lord of the Rings movies and in the bug scene, is he has these like sad action scenes where like there's action going on. There's all this oh, mayhem. Oh, yeah. But it's like all hope is lost. The music yeah. is kind of somber. Like it's, it's really well done. And it, like, it's not only exciting, it's also like you think that maybe the characters are all going to die, you know? You're totally right, um, alluding to Lord of the Rings. Because there's that moment where, like, Andy Serkis, he's, he plays another character, right? Another, uh, a, a member of the ship. And he's hacking, he's hacking at these slug things with his machete. And as, like, one will latch onto one arm, one will latch onto the other. And the score, like, like deepens and mellows and... Like you say, it becomes hollow, the, the, the action almost, because you're seeing this man swallowed alive by slugs. And in 2005, I felt like throwing up. Uh, last week, I felt like throwing up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's so well done. And I feel like you've, um, like, when characters die, because several characters do die in that scene, like, you feel it. It's not just like, oh, yeah, some other character just, like, bit the dust in the background. Like, mm -hmm. like it, you, um, yeah, that sense of mortality and danger, uh, you, you really feel it, yeah. Uh, one, of the, one of my other favorite things about this movie, there are numerous Easter eggs to the 33 Kong that if you, if you haven't seen the 33 Kong, they'll go over your head. But I was like, it's like a weird meta like Carl Denham in Peter Jackson's is filming this jungle picture while making reference to Marion C. Cooper filming this ape picture. <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes like the film in jokes in some other movies, I think can be like a little bit too film nerdish or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. but, but here it's great. Like you just feel the fun of it and like the genuine love for cinema. It's really contagious and fun. Yes. Contagious. That's the word. I like it. <laughs> even down there's like a pepsodent uh ad in Times square in the original in the 1933 mm -hmm. version which peter jackson recreates like verbatim same exact advertisement mm. in Times square towards the end of his remake just little stuff like that is is really fun so cool um uh i'll, I'll move on to the bad a little bit because you you mentioned the t-rex scene and that is a that is a perfect example of Brilliant scene, love the idea. We got three T-Rex and Kong. But man, it goes on uh, a little too long for its own good, don't you think? Yeah, yeah for sure, yeah. <laughs> to the One point. case, sorry. Yeah, it's just like, you know, this was really great for the first six minutes, <laughs> but now it's been like 15 minutes and I, I get it, you know? <laughs> Yeah, that's one case where if he had a producer looking over his shoulder that was like, you need to cut this down, like that probably would have helped the movie for sure. Yeah, yeah. Not, but that's, that's the thing, not that it like hurts the movie because clearly we love this movie. But um, I, re I read a review, it's just like, there's a tighter movie within this story. Yeah, you know I mean? yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, you know, I... Uh, there are several moments like it towards the end when Jack is about to rescue Anne and like these bats suddenly come in and like attack King Kong. <laughs> like uh, uh, that kind of, it's not super long, but it goes on for like five minutes and it's pretty mm -hmm. late in this like three hour plus movie. So you're like, 
now there are giant bats. Come on, we could like move it along a little bit. It's cool that they're like just everywhere you turn, there are like monsters everywhere, but maybe there are a few too many towards the end. Yeah. Uh, another example of indulgence was that the Brontosaurus stampede. And not only was it like, I like the idea, it, it does move the, the, the plot forward. Um, it's the CGI in that scene. And it's a, it's a weird thing with this movie because the special effects with Andy Serkis and that uh, motion capture technology, I think that does hold up really well. But there are some really crude CGI used throughout that almost looks like a cartoon these days. I'm like, dude, that's bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that stampede is the best or worst example of that. Like, uh, you like, you know, obviously it's just the actors like running around on like a soundstage with like green screen behind them. Like, yeah. I feel like we always like in the back of our minds know what that's that that's what it is. But this is one of the cases where you're like, I can't believe this for a second. Clearly, this is what's going on here. You know? Yeah, clearly they're standing in front of a two dimensional, like moving like a movie be playing behind them. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's not a very good scene. <laughs> And it stands out so much more because everything else around those moments is is perfect. Yeah, or, you know, so, like the special effects can be perfect. I, I, you know, um, certainly there are some other scenes that don't work quite as well. Like we already talked about the scenes depicting the natives. Yeah. Um, yeah, but like this, yeah, like you said, the motion capture works so well that it's a shame that then we have this crude CGI in other scenes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, what else didn't work for me? Uh, no, it was the CGI and the, quote, white fears of exotic lands narrative. Yeah, those two things. Those two things really keep, keep you know, I, you know, I, I said the word perfect earlier. I, I was alluding to uh, Andy Serkis's work uh, because those two criticisms I have uh, keep this movie far from perfection in my mind. <laughs> Yes, I would absolutely agree with that. Yeah. Um, you know, I think like, I'm glad that the movie has a sense of humor, but I think that doesn't always work very well. Um, mm. Like some of the stuff early on between the Adrian Brody and Naomi Watts characters can feel a little bit forced. Um, mm -hmm. Like the first time that they meet, she just assumes that like a sound recordist is actually the Jack Driscoll character. Mm. And there's no reason for that. <laughs> like it's kind of an un unnecessary scene. I know it's kind of like the meet cute between her and the Adrian mm -hmm. Brody character, but it's, it does not, it's not convincing at all. Um, so there are a few scenes like that where I feel like the attempts at humor are you know, like well-intentioned, but don't really work all that well. Yeah. Yeah, so interesting. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I mean, we know what made us cry. We we know what made us pull our hair out. What made us laugh in this movie? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, one of my favorite parts in the movie, which is also one of the campiest parts, is when um, Carl first tells, the Jack Dris or tells Jack Driscoll that they're going to Skull Island. And when he first says it, he kind of like whispers it so we don't hear the name. <laughs> and then when Jack Driscoll is like writing it in the script, there's this like crazy zoom in on every single letter. It's like S, K, U. <laughs> it's so over the top. And it's like very reminiscent actually of Peter Jackson's earliest movies. His like, you know, like mm -hmm. Dead Alive and Meet the Feebles, which are just like 
really crazy wild cinematography and like just uh, bizarre editing patterns and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So I loved that part where, you know, Skull Island is just like this over the top, like foreboding. Yeah. Uh, that's so well done. I love that. Yeah, I thought it, it mirrored the essence of what Skull Island is over yeah. the top and dramatic. <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah. I love that part. I think um, another campy part for me that didn't work quite as well is the very end, which is an homage to the original. Uh, you know, the famous last line of dialogue. Uh, it wasn't the airplanes, it was Beauty Killed the Beast. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that is, I think, the last line in the remake as well, spoken mm -hmm. by Jack Black's character. Mm -hmm. And it feels inevitable that that's going to be the last line of the movie as like a, a, a tip of the hat to the original. Mm -hmm. But it does feel a little bit like tongue-in-cheek and it feels like an inappropriate way to end this movie i think mm -hmm. sure especially now that we in this movie uh we have a different relationship with carl denham than we have with carl denham in the 33 version in the mm -hmm. 33 version i think it's still easier to be on his side as a sympathetic heroic but flawed character um in the in the in jackson's version we've seen the dark side of this denham so to give him the final moment does seem a little uh, off key. Yeah, with a level of insight that it seems like he hasn't had throughout most of the movie, you know? Yeah, he hasn't earned. Well, but uh, I'm not, I was going to say maybe he hasn't earned that, but I think, I don't know. I think, I think I can give him the benefit of the doubt of a character arc going through what he has gone through and caused the death of so many people. In a <laughs> sequel, he's probably in jail, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. That's I, that's interesting. Yeah. Perhaps like the very end of the movie is his like the beginning of his descent. Yeah. Possibly. Yeah. Now I say that this movie wasn't interested in exploring that. So it does feel a little shallow to give him that line. Yeah. <laughs> um, trivia. Uh, Faye Ray herself was approached by Peter Jackson to say that line at the end of this movie. Mm. But she I did not. No, she died in pre-production, unfortunately. Wow, I had no idea. That's kind of amazing. Yeah, I was like, she was still alive? Crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess she did, yeah. So she died in 2005, must have been, yeah. Or 04, so. yeah. Okay. I don't, know. I don't know. Well, that would have been like a very moving uh, tribute to the original, but um, but alas, yeah, it was not to be. Alas. Um, so Faye Ray played the Andaro character in 33, Naomi Watts' Andaro character was my campiness. Not her character, but the way Kong treats her physically. Uh, I just couldn't help but notice that in this movie, every time Kong and Anne are together, Kong is literally throwing her around like a ragdoll. <laughs> and it's like fun and lighthearted, but I couldn't help but think of the, the real life physics of that. And like, no, she would die. She'd have a snap neck. She'd have whiplash. She, she would not survive being thrown around by a giant monkey, ape. I, no way. Yeah, <laughs> I definitely thought that a lot. Yeah, that's, that does not scientifically hold up for sure. But also, you know, um, like a quick shout out to like the original King Kong is a, a pre-code uh, movie. We haven't even talked about that at all. And it's one of the no. most interesting parts of the original King Kong. Yeah. But, the, you know, like the fact that Kong is able to like undress Fay Ray's character in the original, yeah. uh, even though like his fingers are like the size of her entire body. <laughs> like, you know, of course, that's ridiculous, too. Um, 
yeah. it's, you know, it's it's part of like the world of King Kong, but yeah, it's, it does not hold up to scrutiny. No, and I'm I'm really glad Peter Jackson took a more platonic route with their relationship. <laughs> it works yeah. like 33 because it it's still actually it doesn't for me it never crosses the line of just awkward like it like you say it's more campy it's more like oh this is weird but funny mm -hmm. uh if they were if jackson was to pursue that in the 21st century it might be weird not funny yeah that is a case where he seemed to think the better of it which you wish that he would do with the native characters as well <laughs> right. do, but um <laughs> uh we'll wrap up here uh what 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 would you give this this movie in your estimation? Is it, is it a, a a timeless classic? Does it does it have a lot of great moments and stands the test of time, or is it just not not worth your time? I think it has a lot of great moments. Uh, it, I would not call it a timeless classic. Um, you know, I, I think like the just the uh, discomfort even if it is very interesting of the native characters and how the movie doesn't quite know how to do that in a subversive way for the 21st century. Uh, I can't look past that. I think that's an issue. And I, I think the good and the bad thing about this movie is that it's more than three hours. Peter Jackson can do whatever he wants, including, you know, like 15 minute long uh, Kong and dinosaur fight. So yeah. it is, it's self-indulgent for better and for worse. You're glad that he's able to like create something with so much personality, but it, that's not always a good thing to just be able to do whatever you want. Well said. Uh, I think I, so I gave the, so I do think, oh, this is interesting. I always love doing this because I love hearing your thoughts. Cause then it, it makes me not reconsider, but maybe reframe the, the narrative in my head a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, I think this movie is a classic. I think it does hold up with a major asterisk on the native characters. Like, yeah, just have to know that. Um, however, it's classic because I love King Kong, especially the original movie. So if you, so I don't, I don't know if you would enjoy a three-hour runtime uh, with racial caricatures. You know, if you, if you, if you didn't already know what you're coming into, you know what I mean. Yeah, I, I think you're totally right that you do kind of need to love the original to enjoy the remake. Um, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. But for, you know, uh, for that reason, for lovers of cinema, especially lovers of early horror, um, it's, it, you know, it, it is a certain kind of classic, and I think it's a must-see. Yeah, for sure. Cool, man. All right. I love <laughs> that discussion. That was perfect. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I'll, always really, a pleasure. We got really deep there for a little bit. I yeah. enjoyed it. I enjoyed yeah. it. Yes, indeed. I mean, I, I love that how many different directions our conversations go in. So um, mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. was no, no different. So everybody watching this or listening to this, uh, we did run a little long on our usual 30 to 40 minute window. So what I'm going to do, as I did with Mimic, was I'm going to take a portion of this and release it next week or the week after this as sort of like a bonus extra material. Uh, so stay tuned for that on the podcast. Follow, like, subscribe, engage with us on the podcast, Instagram, website, Letterboxd, Twitter even, wherever it is, search Camp Kaiju. And Matt, what are we talking about next time? Uh, in two weeks, we're going to talk about another remake, Cat People by Paul Schrader from 1982. Mm -hmm. 
we talked about the original Cat People in the fall. I believe that was in October. Really, really great movie. Very subtle and understated. The remake of Cat People by Paul Schrader is as far as possible in the other direction. It's over the top. It's uh, pretty sleazy. Um, very bizarre. And I love it. I love Paul Schrader, um, one of the most interesting directors in the United States over the last 50 years, I would say. Um, we're going to have a lot to talk about in a couple of weeks. Okay. Well, I can't wait to see it. I, I, I have heard the term erotic thriller attached to it. Uh, so I think we're going to go to some un, uncharted territory in Camp Kaiju. Uh, <laughs> Indeed. Maybe, maybe uh, leave the kids at home for this one. <laughs> <laughs> it's always suggested for camp kaiju i would say <laughs> i love it uh thanks man for being a part of this i appreciate it thank you always a pleasure and i look forward to next time and everyone else till next time stay campy thanks for listening friends if you like what you hear please follow rate and review this podcast and follow us on instagram for more monster movie talk i'm vincent hannam with matt levine music by terrence jackson And until next time, stay campy. Oh, and don't forget to visit BanditsEmporium.com or hit the link in our bio to shop Camp Kaiju t-shirts. BanditsEmporium.com is our official t-shirt partner, so show them some love while you're at it. You're in good sleeves. Uh, arms. Either way, just use promo code CAMPKAIJU at checkout for that 10% discount. And whatever your style, BanditsEmporium.com has you covered. As they say, we sell shirts. I want the cast and crew on the ship within the hour. No, Carl, you can't do this. Tell them the studio pressured us into an early departure. It's not ethical. What are they going to do, sue me? Huh? They can get in line. I'm not going to let them kill my film. We have three hours to find a new leading lady or we're finished. There are thousands of actresses out of work in this city. Somewhere out there is a woman born to play this role. A woman who will journey into the heart of the unknown towards a fateful meeting that changes everything. I've come into possession of a map. An uncharted island. A place that was thought to exist only in myth. Wall! There's a wall ahead! Until now. That's where I'm gonna shoot my picture. You're feeling uneasy, Anne. Feeling's growing. It's washing over you. Scream, Anne! Scream for your life! Get the camera.